This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Later on in this episode, we'll have a special discount offer just for Discovering Trek listeners. Discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. New captain, kind of. New adventure, and a new season. Oh, we've been waiting for months for the return of our favorite crew to start their next adventure. And as a certain Romulan from another timeline once said, the wait is over. Star Trek Discovery Season 2 is kicked off with its inaugural episode entitled Brother, and we're starting things off on the right foot as we welcome a familiar face to the bridge to start looking for answers to a mysterious threat. We've got a lot of talk about, so let's hit it. My name is Dan Davidson, and we are Discovering Trek. Welcome, one and all, to Discovering Trek, the Star Trek Discovery Companion, presented by Fansets. I am just overjoyed to be back at it, discussing Discovery on a weekly basis. And this week's first episode gives us just so much to talk about, I really don't know where to begin. From the return of a beautiful old friend in the Enterprise, to a new look at a legendary captain, to an interesting storyline that is sure to bring the best of Star Trek to the surface... Episode 1 gave us a fantastic jumping-off point for Season 2. As always, this is the premiere podcast for the most in-depth discussion and analysis about the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, entitled Brother. And from what we saw in the episode, there is no denying that we are about to be taken on an amazing ride. And when I say we, well, you know, it's time to introduce my amazing co-host. If I were stranded on an asteroid and my brain injury continued to leak out on a daily basis, I'm sure I could count on him to take care of me. As always, he is my very special friend, my brother in Trek, and my amazing number one. He is Bill Smith. Bill, dude, we have been waiting for this moment for a very long time. It's been almost 11 months, Dan, since season one concluded. And I am so happy to be back behind the microphone, buddy. Thank you so much for that intro. Um, I'm concerned that you're a Tellarite in that analogy, or perhaps it's a simile, uh, according to Michael Burnham. I'm not really sure, but either way, Dan, great to be back, buddy. It's it's great to be here. You know, we've been, you know, we had some great discussions with short treks, but getting back into a season and getting back into a season the way that it kicked off just makes this discussion all that more fun uh, and enjoyable. And the other thing that's enjoyable is we've got a special guest with us for episode one of Discovering Trek in season two. And uh, who might that be, buddy? Well, Dan, he's the co-host of Politrex on the Tricorder Transmissions Network of Podcasts, where he and his co-host Barry DeFord examine politics and society in Star Trek. And tonight, he joins us to break down the first episode of Discovery's sophomore season. He is our great friend, Shajan Kavaru, with his dog, Zod, and we welcome them both to their for their first visit to Discovering Trek. Shashank, so good to have you here, my friend. Uh, thank you so much. This was bound to happen. Uh, I have uh, <laughs> I have an 11-month-old puppy, and nothing will calm him down until circadian That's... rhythm takes over and he gets to sleep. So I'm uh, so so sorry for all our listeners, but it can only be it can only go uphill from here. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds great. He he, he should have his own show. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, thank you so much for having me, guys. This is great. 
Oh, it's it's our pleasure. We are very puppy friendly here on Discovering Trek, so we welcome Zod uh, uh, to the show as well. And man, it, it's great to have you here. Um, you know, we had uh, Barry on last year for an episode, so it's great to get the better half of of Polytrex here on Discovering Trek. So, uh, so thanks for joining us, man. Thank you. You're very kind, and that is also true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, well, as I've said, gentlemen, we've got a lot to break down and discuss. But before we do that, Bill, perhaps you can tell our listeners how they can get in touch with us to give them their thoughts about season two's first episode, Brother. Brother? Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Dan, hailing frequencies are open all across the Milky Way galaxy as we try to figure out what these red bursts are. On Twitter, we can be found at Discovering Trek. And on Ye Old Book of Faces, we're at Facebook.com slash Discovering Trek. In either place, you can become part of the discussion or even leave us comments, questions, or maybe even your predictions on what's going to happen this season. I mean, you certainly can't do any worse than we have done. Plus, you can also send us a voicemail by going to our website at trekgeeks.com and clicking on the giant blue button that says send voicemail. Please do remember, though, at any comments you could leave us, might be used in a future episode of Discovering Trek. Dan. Thanks, Bill. Black alert. Black alert. From here on in, this episode of Discovering Trek contains spoilers. So if you haven't watched episode one of season two's Star Trek Discovery, stop listening right now. Go on over to CBS All Access or wherever you watch Discovery, watch the latest episode, and then come on back. Failure to do that puts you at risk to find out plot developments and character details for Brother. Last season on Star Trek Discovery. What? The Enterprise? Space. The Final Frontier. In voiceover, Commander Michael Burnham tells us of an African legend about a girl who tossed the stars into the sky. A secret was hidden within those stars, and only someone whose heart is open to the message can uncover the secret. We then see the time that Sarek brought Michael Burnham home to Vulcan for the first time, and she meets Amanda. Amanda takes Michael to meet her son Spock. Sarek tries to introduce the two kids. Spock appears to be drawing on a computer device, and he begins to toss his drawings into the air. They form a kind of holographic serpent. Michael extends her hand to Spock, but he literally slams the door in her face. Back in the here and now, we pick up right where we were last season. Captain Pike transmits a message requesting to come aboard with a tactical and science officer. Saru has Burnham accompany him to the transporter room to greet them. On the way, Saru and Burnham discuss her familiar relationship to the Enterprise's science officer. Burnham asks Saru if he has siblings. He tells her about a sister named Serana and that there's terrain between them that he fears they cannot navigate. Burnham admits to the same between her and her Vulcan foster brother. Pike and party beam aboard. Burnham is surprised when the science officer that beams in with Pike isn't Spock. Pike informs acting Captain Saru that he's there to take command of the Discovery for an emergency mission. Seven signals suddenly appeared simultaneously throughout the galaxy, and then they disappeared, with only one remaining. In the turbo lift, Pike tells Saru he's going to need the command codes, and Saru says he can't do that. By regulation, he's unable to turn those codes over until Pike has gone through all of the necessary security checks in front of the bridge crew. These are precautions put in place during the war with the Klingons. 
Once verified, Captain Pike introduces himself to this to the Discovery Bridge crew, stressing to them that he is not Gabriel Lorca. Pike assumes command and gives the order to head toward the mysterious signal. Paul Stamets is in his lab watching an old message from Hugh Culber when Tilly interrupts him. Discovery Spore Drive is now inactive, and the engineering lab is going to be converted back to a dedicated engineering space. Tilly tells Stamets that she's found him some new lab space, but then Stamets takes the opportunity to tell her that he's leaving Starfleet to take a teaching position at the Vulcan Science Academy. Tilly tries to talk him out of it, but his mind is pretty well made up. In her quarters, Burnham reads Alice in Wonderland when Sarek stops by. He, too, is leaving the Discovery to join a task force studying the signals. He's already reached out to Klingon High Chancellor Laurel and confirmed that the Klingons are mystified by these signals as well. They both wonder why Spock didn't beam aboard the Discovery with Pike, and it turns out that it's been years since either of them has spoken to Spock. Burnham asks Sarek what he hoped Spock would learn from her, and he says, Empathy. Something Spock would need in order to interact with humans and that he couldn't learn from his mother because he viewed her with such reverence. Sarek admits he doesn't think he was successful, that Spock never seemed to fully accept Michael as a sibling. Michael says that he may have accepted her for a time, but also empathy is very real for Spock. On the bridge, Pike asks for a roll call of the Discovery's bridge crew and we shoot around the bridge to let them reintroduce themselves. They drop out of warp at the signal's last known coordinates, and it turns out to be an asteroid field. Oh, and there's no damn red thing. Where's the damn red thing? There's an asteroid that seems to have an atmosphere despite not being large enough to have a gravity field. When the Discovery attempts to move in closer, the ship and the asteroid repel one another just like similarly charged magnets. The trajectory of the asteroid is now changed as a result, and it's on a collision course with a pulsar in about, oh, five hours. To make matters even more complex, it appears that a Starfleet medical frigate, the USS Hiawatha, presumed lost during the war, has crash-landed on the asteroid. Pike gives the order to prep a landing party and asks for ideas on how to get to the asteroid to search for survivors. After a tense exchange with Pike, Burnham has an idea. Tilly lets Burnham know that the spores have had a reaction to the asteroid in a way she hasn't seen since the tardigrade, and she also tells Burnham about Stamets wanting to leave. She asks Michael to bring back a sample of the asteroid. Burnham, Pike, Enterprise Science Officer Connolly, and Tactical Officer Non take off in specially designed pods to travel to the Hiawatha. Burnham takes the lead and the other pods follow her into the asteroid field. The pods are forced to go to manual control because the gravitational field of the asteroid affects auto-navigation. Burnham tells Connolly that his field is far too wide, and he tells her she's wrong and begins to protest, when a giant chunk of asteroid crashes right into his pod and kills him. Bummer, dude. Pike's pod has sustained heavy damage, and his emergency helmet fails to seal so he can't eject. The Discovery Troop calculates a tra trajectory to remotely eject him, and Burnham so that she can also rescue him. Pike, Burnham, and Non eventually all make it to the surface of the asteroid, and they can see the Hiawatha in the distance. When they arrive at the ship, they're greeted by drones, built with what appears to be recycled Starfleet technology. The asteroid shakes, and a voice tells them to follow the kids. That voice belongs to Commander Jet Reno, chief engineer of the Hiawatha. She greets them in the makeshift sickbay she set up to keep the survivors from the Hiawatha alive. She's been on the asteroid for 10 months and had no idea the war was over. They brief her on the collision course with the Pulsar. A plan to get them and the wounded back to Discovery is set into motion. They set up pattern enhancers to allow the Discovery to lock on and beam out. 
Pike asks Reno about the signals, and she doesn't seem to know anything about them. Discovery beams the first group of patients to the ship, but also takes some damage from asteroid debris. As the last of the transports begins to commence, you know, the one with Pike, Reno, Nan, and Burnham, pretty much always the way it goes, the transporter malfunctions. Burnham runs off the pad to fix it, but is blown clear of the transporter console as the group is transported away. The asteroid continues to shake, and the Hiawatha begins to collapse. Burnham decides to make a run for it. Burnham then gets knocked unconscious by some exploding debris and is injured by burning shrapnel that has pierced through her thigh. She screams in excruciating pain. She looks up and sees what appears to be an angel. It begins to distort when Pike runs through the image to rescue her. Burnham picks up a sample of the asteroid laying next to her fertility, but when she is transported, the beam doesn't dematerialize the sample. That's weird. In sickbay, Burnham tells Tilly what happened with the sample. This could be a huge scientific discovery. Burnham has already come up with a plan to retrieve another sample before the pulsar destroys it. Tilly has an idea, and she heads for the shuttle bay where she's going to need a gravity generator. Stamets overhears and trails behind her to help out. On the bridge, Pike says his mission is complete, and he allows Saru to resume command of the discovery. Saru takes the center seat for the attempt to get the asteroid sample. Turns out, it's going to be a pretty huge sample. Saru orders Detmer to put the asteroid in their wake, and she moves the Discovery into position. Saru tells her to put on the brakes, and that asteroid flies right into Discovery's shuttle bay and gets caught in the artificial gravity field. Yay math. Burnham comes to the captain's ready room, and Pike is there in some new threads. Starfleet has given him command of the Discovery. Again. Sorry, Saru. Turns out the Enterprise is badly damaged. It's going to take a lot of time to repair, but they have to determine the origin and intent of the red signals. Pike finds a fortune on the floor next to the desk in the ready room that reads, Not every cage is a prison, nor every loss eternal. Curious. Pike and Burnham talk things Spock. She tells Pike that she's the reason that she and Spock don't have a relationship. She asks to go to the Enterprise to see Spock. Pike tells her Spock isn't there. He's on leave. He also tells her that missing the war took a big toll on the Enterprise crew, including Pike and Spock. Pike recalls Spock asking him, what's the logic in staying away if there's nothing left to come back to? Pike also recalls something about Spock changing a few months ago, as if he had a question he just couldn't find the answer to. Spock requested leave because he had plenty of it accumulated, and Pike granted it. Burnham still wants to go to the Enterprise, and Pike gives her permission to. Once aboard the Enterprise, Burnham enters Spock's quarters. She plays Spock's last personal log, and he talks about how he had something his mother referred to as nightmares as a child. Amanda taught him to draw these nightmares as a means to render them powerless. In the log, he also says the nightmares have returned, and he sees the same vision over and over. He understands its meaning now and where it must lead him. He's encoded it in his audio file, knowing very well that this may be his last entry. Burnham accesses it and starts tossing the elements into the air in holographic form. She discovers what appears to be a map, a map of the very same signals that Pike was investigating on the Enterprise. She becomes very concerned and says that she won't lose her brother again. Bill, my man, <laughs> I miss that. You know, for short treks, it was great to have you do a quick 30-second recap off the cuff most of the time about the episode. But, you know, having these full-length recaps with your mellifluous tones, man, it it just means we're back home. I love it. It's great. You know, Good job. You know, 
The only thank you. The only thing I didn't work in was a hey brother. Because <laughs> it just the episode begs it. But uh that, that's my line. I know it's good to be back in the saddle. <laughs> it's good. It is good. Nicely done. Nicely done. Trainees to the briefing room. So let's get right into it, as we like to do uh at the beginning of the episode, uh, is get some high-level thoughts on on the episode, brother. So Shashank, let's start with you. Very high level, no details. Did you like it? Did you dislike it? Thumbs up, thumbs down. And and what are your, your high level points, buddy? I loved the episode. I genuinely did. You know how when you're watching something uh, that is so good and so interesting, and uh, there is a certain complexity that is mostly positive, but there's also a certain sense of apprehension. And you just realize you're loving what you're seeing. That's how I felt while watching the episode uh, throughout. So yeah, definitely a thumbs up for me. What about you guys? Yeah, I I certainly agree. I gave it a thumbs up. Uh, I loved it. It was a great way to start the season off. Uh, Last year was filled with war and death and a little darkness and uncertainty. And this season kicked off with the crew being comfortable with one another. There was some humor and the the story that is starting to unfold looks like it's going to be a really good one. So I, I loved it, Bill. What about you? I have to agree with both of you. I think it's thumbs up and way up at that. This was fun and adventure filled. And in some ways, at least for me, I think it evoked feelings of Star Trek 2009. But I think it was even better since it was made for the small screen and it's really more intimate. I think that it showed that Star Trek can be just as grand in our living rooms as we've come to expect it to be in theaters on the big screen. And I think that's really the quality of this episode that I enjoyed the most. Nice. Yeah, I remember the the first episode in season one and its grandness and the special effects and it looked like big screen and I actually got to see it on a big screen. So I, I digress a little bit, but you're right. It, it it really is great to see this in your living room with the scope that it is. So so let's get into some some key points on this on this uh, uh, episode, brother. The first thing I want to talk about, guys, is what your thoughts are on the flashback scenes with a young Burnham and Spock. Now. For me, as I was watching this with my wife and we saw those flashback scenes and and they were waiting for Spock to react to Burnham, I said, oh, God, don't do something stupid. Don't do something stupid, like say some witty comment and then just turn around. But no, he just decided to slam the door in their faces. So I thought it was interesting to get that first look on the headbutting, I guess you could say, that was going to happen between these two characters as kids. What do you think, Bill? Um, I think that, well, you know, in, in the animated series, the episode, the practical Joker, uh, Kirk has a uniform tunic on that, on the back says Kirk is a jerk. And unfortunately, no, I think we need one that says young Spock is a jerk because, <laughs> um, man, he really kind of was, he was, he was appeared to be jealous. I mean, obviously his human half coming through as a child before he's learned to, to, to vulcanize his emotions to employ an adjective. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, he clearly thinks that, you know, as a child, I'm guessing that Michael Burnham you know, perceives or he perceives some sort of threat to his relationship with his mother. Um, And I found that really interesting. It's an aspect of Spock's character. I rather liked uh, to be honest in in the whole picture of Spock, but, um, but I mean, that's just, uh, that's just me. I I like weird things like that. Shock. What about you? I will say one of the things that I thought was very interesting, and this is just a casting comment, whoever they picked to play young Burnham. Oh my God. It's so reflective of, of Sonequa. I thought it was a great cast um, with the, with the facial features and the hair and everything. I thought it was really good. But uh, Shashank, what did you think about those flashback scenes that we saw throughout the episode? You stole my opening line uh, right out of my mouth. That was, that was the first <laughs> thing I was going to bring up, but just the setting. Uh, I really liked Amanda. I liked uh, Sarek. I, it was so atmospheric and so haunting. And when she, she, she asks uh, Sarek, 
hey, uh, what happened to this child? And he says the unthinkable. And then you cut to them walking in slow motion. You feel you feel a looming sense of sadness, which is what they were trying to portray. And they did great. But just a couple yeah. of things I wanted to say about that opening. Uh, I, I really liked the Spock casting, uh, the young Spock. It, it's almost as if you can cut that scene. And Bill, you brought up 2009 Trek. You could cut this scene and the 2009 trek him giving his examination scene in the in the room you could cut those together where he goes and beats up a kid it's all that character is so in tune the the fact that these guys go through these things so meticulously is great and one other thing i wanted to say about the opening is uh, looks like spock found a fantastic beast uh, when he was throwing it up there <laughs> uh nice yeah charm looks good yeah fantastic <laughs> beast and where to find them spock found one of them uh, I, I have a few things to say about the jealousy part uh, and what the relationship is like, but uh, I'm sure we'll get into it because I think we see a different angle in the Alice in Wonderland scene. Because if you pause that scene just before it cuts out, you see Spock smiling uh, when mm-hmm. he looks at both of them. So you can tell that the relationship will grow and it'll become even more complicated as it goes on for sure. Interesting. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, we will definitely get into that because I had a couple of comments as well later on in the show. So we did get to see a young Spock. So the return of a familiar character here on Star Trek Discovery. But uh, let's talk about what I think may be the biggest part of this uh, intro into season two. We've been talking about it for months. Anson Mount as Christopher Pike and the return of Pike to Star Trek. I can't tell you how blown away I am with Pike's return and the way that Anson Mount portrays this character. It was flawless. And I was so excited to see him return right from the first moment he beamed on uh, to the discovery. Uh, Shashank, let's start with you. Um, I don't think I have seen anything online (laughs) negatively talking about the return of Pike to Star Trek. What did you think about his character in this episode one? Uh, I think Anson Mount is incredible. Uh, I am a huge fan of Anson Mount from Hell on Wheels. That's where I first met him. Uh, and he's always known to play these really down-on-earth, down-on-their-luck characters who've had trouble just adjusting to society. From going to that character to seeing him come into life and bringing positivity to the ship, you see him literally come in from a beam of light when he's uh, transported off into the ship. You see him go from that to just bringing so much sheen and positivity and joy. And that guy has some amazing one-liners. I could probably do an entire episode on all the awesome one-liners he has to say. So, yeah, I love the Anson Mount portrayal for sure. And uh, it's a very well-needed breath of fresh air. There's When you go from that war and darkness, as you're talking about, to the positivity, it's such a good change. Bill, what about you? Um Obviously, the return of a character that's got, you know, we only saw him a couple of times in original Trek, but he's got uh, some gravitas. And 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 as soon as you say Captain Pike, people know who he is. And did you have any trepidation about what this Pike was going to be like? Because I certainly didn't. Um, and seeing what Anson Mount brought to the screen just amplified how awesome this character is going to be. I, I didn't really have any trepidation. I think that it was a smart move in the wake of what the crew went through with Lorca last year. Uh, I mean, they needed this season and really kind of an unassailable character who, you know, wears a white hat, who, you know, is one of the good guys to, to step in here. 
Um, and instead of going around and going with the permanent captain, they took decided to take a character that we know to add some credibility. I think that the the Pike that we meet here on Discovery very easily could be a post uh, the cage Pike. You know, maybe he's gotten his uh, his groove back. You know, maybe he's back in the uh, in the chair with a renewed purpose. Because at the beginning of the cage, he's he's weary, he's tired. Mm-hmm. You know, he's tired of deciding who goes on away missions and who lives and who dies by his own admission. So I, I feel like that Anson Mount really just delivers a Pike that is fun to watch. You know, he's the kind of captain we would have hoped for in TOS had it been mm-hmm. Pike. And I think he delivers a, a modern version of that, which I think is truly exciting. I love what he's doing. I liked what he did, especially at the beginning of the episode when he got on the bridge. Of course, Discovery had gone through what they went through with Lorca, and we all know what happened. And all of a sudden, this guy shows up, and he's going to take over command from Saru, who's still in command until they get a permanent captain. So everybody's nervous. Um, We don't know a lot about this crew yet, um, but you can tell that there's some trepidation on what's going on. So he throws his service record up on the screen and gives a speech that, to me, was right up there with Saru's from last year's season finale. Um, I thought it was brilliant and it, it just shows the, the complete character of Pike in terms of he could sense it too. He wanted to put those fears to rest. He was lucky, lucky or unlucky enough to read the entire, um, report about what happened with Lorca. And he was a true captain and getting the people on that bridge to rally around him to head off in this mission. Um, what did you guys think about that speech? Uh, I think it was one of the highlights of the episode. Shashank? Absolutely. When we start the episode with Pike, you see him saying, uh, what I learned at the Mojave is the best way to get into a cold stream is to jump right in. And you see that from that scene continue to the speech where he comes in and addresses the gone on the bridge. He talks about the sense of betrayal that everybody felt by Lorca. And he says, yep, I am not that guy. That's the last thing you need to be worried about. I know what I'm doing here. And uh, underneath everything I do is a sense of loyalty for all of us. And you see that loyalty play out to later on, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yep, very inspiring speech. And uh, my favorite thing is there are no words wasted in that speech. It's very short, very straight to the point. And it gets everything he wants to say in the least amount of words possible because he's ready to get to work. He wants the crew to be ready to get to work. And he is a loyal, good captain. And it's great to see that after we saw Georgiou in the pilot and that was it. One of the things that I like before we get your comments, Bill, on the speech is when they had his service record up, um, some very um, eagle-eyed people on Twitter noticed, including the person that's named after, one of the awards that Pike has received is the Akuda Award, which I think is a great call out to Mike Akuda, who actually tweeted it out uh, yesterday or, or the day before uh, as we record. I thought that was really cool to have those kind of little uh, Easter eggs thrown into episodes, which they always do. But Bill, I know you're a guy of, of high morals and everything, so I'm sure you thought that speech was just he just hit it right out of the park. Uh, I'm oh, so sorry a- for interrupting. I just wanted to point out that uh, another Easter egg on the service record, you see Arya Bhatta uh, as one of the ships he served on, I believe. Uh, which is a reference to an Indian mathematician. Any chance I get to plug my brown people, I'll do it. So that was that was the thing. He's a really famous ancient Indian mathematician, and uh, he, he's kind of uh, like a like an old one of those celebrities that you have from ages ago that you really nice. enjoy and rejoice. But I'm so sorry, Bill. Keep going. <laughs> no, that's that's totally okay. Uh, I absolutely thought the speech was spot on. I mean, 
it, it draw a, sorry it drew a clear delineation between Gabriel Lorca who who ruled through fear and edict and Christopher Pike who looked to inspire the people under his command even if this is just a temporary command um but that's the way Christopher Pike is you know he immediately established that he was not that guy and he gave them something to to be confident about to believe in so I, I think it was a really good job of, of setting the tone of Pike with the entire bridge crew. And I, even there are some uncomfortable spots in that scene afterwards, especially between he and Burnham. He at least demonstrates the ability to listen and then pivot, which I, I have to believe is part of Christopher Pike's DNA. So I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, we'll get back to that uncomfortable moment with Burnham later on. But in, absolutely. Now, I said this was one of the best parts of the episode was his speech. But for me personally, it's a small, it's, well, it's not a small thing, but I think the best part of this episode was what also took place on the bridge uh, of the discovery. And that's the roll call. That moment where he had everybody say their name was absolutely brilliant because it let him know who was on the bridge and it let us know who's on the bridge. We saw these people last season, but we didn't know anything about them. Some people, we didn't even know their names. So I thought that that was a brilliant piece of writing. I loved it. It was my favorite moment of the episode, Bill. Uh, what'd you think about that? I, I sincerely tip my hat to Ted Sullivan um, for, for this part of the script. It is, it's great. These are characters that we didn't, that we saw, but like you said, Dan, we didn't really know. So we got a reintroduction to them native to the script, which I thought was just brilliant. Um, and plus I didn't realize until well after the episode of the air that somebody else is playing Arium now. Um, and Sarah Middick who's playing Arium is now playing somebody else who's human. Um, so okay. it's, yeah, I know it's, it's kind of <laughs> mind blowing, but, uh, as far as this, it was a great reminder of who these folks are. I thought there were some missed opportunities by not exploring these, this bridge crew more in the short treks, but I thought that this was a great way to get them back in our four in the foreground of our minds, um, with just a simple roll call. I thought it was uh, so well done. It was great. Shashank, what did you think about it? One of the things I like most about it, not only did we get the names, the camera work for that scene, how they shot quickly to each person in a real fast swoop, I thought really intensified the the scene to to make it work even more. What do you think, Shashank? As you both very well know, Discovery is a universally acclaimed show and has no people hating it online whatsoever. <laughs> none not a one <laughs> well uh given the recap at the beginning of the episode and the way everything is introduced and the storyline is introduced i think the discovery creatives were very well aware that there might be people who will be jumping on straight from season two uh, just to see what they're doing and not actually go back to season one sure so for those people this is a great way to introduce the crew and it, it's uh it goes right up there with the new intro they had for the season of the theme, it's very much in keeping with uh, what they were trying to do as far as leaving that season behind and starting off anew. Uh, so this was a way of them saying, hey, it's fine if you haven't seen season one, here's your crew. This is all that you need to know about them. And my favorite thing about that roll call, perhaps, is uh, a very small throwaway line that shows you exactly who Pike is. He says, rank doesn't matter. Just tell me what, what your name is. That mm -hmm. shows you what kind of a guy he is. He's not the, I'm going to stick to, he's not the Benjamin Maxwell who decides I'm going to stick to your rank. There needs to be hierarchy. He's a guy who wants to get the job done. And everybody, when it comes to a mission, is equally important to him. That's a great way to look at it. That the people may not have watched season one. I never, I never thought of it until you just said it, man. That this may be brand new for some people, and it's a good way to introduce it. One thing that I always thought was, I don't know if it was a detractor, 
to Discovery is that bridge is humongous when you compare it to a TOS bridge or even even maybe a Galaxy class bridge. I think it's bigger than that. At least it looks at it in scope. So there's a lot of people flying around in different positions and on different stations. So to have this scene uh, take place here in the opening uh, opening 15 minutes or so of the episode, I think worked really well. So let's dive deeper into uh, some things that took place later on in the episode, guys. And uh, let's focus in for a few minutes on the Hiawatha scenes and the whole idea of of what happened with, with that ship and what took place while we were there. Bill, I want to start with you. And I know that there was one particular scene that really uh, rang true for you that took place on the Hiawatha, and that's Burnham when she was stabbed in the leg. Uh, I know we've talked about that a little bit. <laughs> Uh, we have, you know, I, I think the thing I like about the Hiawatha scenes is they all seem very real. Hmm. You know, a part of the the limitation that earlier Star Treks have had was was clearly budget and the the ability of special effects to deliver, you know, given shots, you know, within that budget. And here with Discovery, I mean, we've we've got a new paradigm, so we get to see action sequences and 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 a vision of the future that is certainly more in line with what today's viewer would hope to see. And and one of these things was just the absolute, you know, decimation of the Hiawatha in in, in parts on the ship. And when Burnham is trying to escape the ship and runs back out, you know, through where they came, and essentially, you know, some debris explodes, and she winds up with this you know, incredibly hot, you know, piece of shrapnel going through her thigh. She lets out a scream like we've never heard in Star Trek before from somebody never. being injured. I mean, think about it. There are episodes of Next Gen where Riker breaks an arm or a leg or something <laughs> in a power play. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I broke a bone. I got to get to sick bay. This hurts. But, you know, she has this scream that is like, yeah, that's probably about what I would do. And yeah. it was just something like that 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 really kind of ties it together and keeps the believability in the scene. Um, with regard to the other scenes, I, I really like the way the script was constructed around the Hiawatha. I, I liked the introduction to Commander Reno. And I, I liked that, you know, she had to use her engineering skills in some level to keep these people alive. I thought that was really kind of fascinating. I kind of wanted a little more detail in that regard. But, of course, that wasn't the central focus of the story. Yeah, it was interesting to me how they they gave the story of what happened to the Hiawatha. And then when they showed it, it kind of brought it all all together for me. Because when they first talked about it, I'm like, okay, how's it? okay this is like the Janolan on the Dyson Sphere that just happened to crash on this asteroid. But yeah. So I really liked how they were able to tie it together. Shashank, what did you think about what took place on the Hiawatha? One of the things that I liked, which we're going to get into, I think, in, in a few minutes, is all of the references to the different alien species when uh, – uh, um, Commander Reno was was um, keeping injured crew members alive. But what did you think about what took place on Hiawatha? I personally really enjoyed the lead up to them actually getting to the Hiawatha, them navigating through the asteroid field with Connolly being cocky and uh, really ignoring what Burnham is telling them. Uh, or just the way they were navigating and this, the high stakes reminded me of the spacesuit navigation scene from Into Darkness where they're going into the ship, John Harrison and Kirk. Into Darkness, of course, is the best movie of the Star Trek uh, Kelvin trilogy. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. <laughs> uh, but uh, going into Hiawatha itself, you're absolutely right. That scream was so primal and it 
I don't think anybody outside of Burnham could have done that and shown us shown to us on screen. Because if you think about characters like Picard and Kirk, with the rules that were set for Star Trek, they were not supposed to be like that. They were not supposed to be so vulnerable and they could never show those things. But one of the benefits of seeing a character like Burnham is that we get to experience those human le- level moments closer than perhaps someone like Kirk or Picard. So that was definitely a a, a great uh, way to look at things. I also really enjoyed Tignotaro. Maybe that was just me. I, I didn't hear a whole lot of chatter about it, but I really enjoyed her performance. Uh, I love uh, all the... Uh, another person with great one-liners. Remind me never uh, to get stranded in the middle of an enemy ship in wars, in, uh, while war is going on. That was a good one. Uh, and Evolution's a Fickle Bitch. Am I right? That was a good one. Uh, just all kinds of great uh, one-liners you would hear from someone who has been alone and cooped up in a, in a place for ten months. So yeah, just that was a that was a great scene, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about what happened right after that scene. But just wonderful scene, great VFX. I really hate that we do not get to see this on a big screen in the theater. Like uh, that that just that that's just sad. That's tragic. I, I have a feeling we'll be talking about Commander Reno uh, shortly. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, a great scene. I love the scope. Uh, you kind of just played on a little bit, Shashank. I love the 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 size of the ship that we saw. We didn't get to see this in other um, versions of Star Trek. When they beam down, that is a huge. I don't know if it's the engine room or wherever they are when they first get there. Um, but it, the the special effects of the show to be able to show the scope and size of of things like like the Hiawatha, uh, I think was a real a, a real positive. Um, let's get back to Spock for a few minutes. We talked about the jealousy factor a little bit. We talked about what it was like as a kid. I'm really intrigued to see what Ethan Peck is going to bring to this character based on what we saw just in this episode with young Spock and then hearing grown up Spock on his um, personal log. Bill, let's start with you this time. What do you think is going to, what do you think we're going to see with this box? Do you think that they showed these scenes, these flashbacks more for the relationship and headbutting that I referenced earlier between the two, or kind of a way to show that the Spock that we are used to is not the Spock that we're going to see in season two because it takes place 10 years before TOS. He's still got emotion. He's still got things he's got to deal with. And we got to get used to seeing that for this episode, for at least for the season. I think maybe a little column A and a little column B, to be honest. Um, I, I think that the flashback scenes were there simply to demonstrate, you know, that, that Michael and Spock, didn't really get off to a great start, you know, and even in the episode when she's talking to Sarah, she admits that she hasn't spoken to Spock in years either. You know, so, so clearly there's some separation there. We don't know, perhaps a falling out, but I think it, it serves to illustrate a trend, but also to show that, you know, she, she was forced to, to forge a relationship with this person. Um, and, and I think that we're going to see some sort of resolution of that as the season goes on. I think that, that Ethan Peck has a Spock, you know, ahead of him that, that is going to be a bit of a challenge. Like you said, he's probably younger and emotional, kind of like uh, Zachary Quinto's Spock was in Star Trek 2009. Maybe a little differently, it's hard to say, but um, clearly he's drawn to this in much the same way that, that later Spock is drawn to V'ger. You know, it seems like a very similar setup in that regard. So uh, I'm looking forward to see where Ethan Peck takes it. And I really am excited to see the scenes between he and, he and Sinequa Martin-Green because there is a lot there to resolve, I think. 
Oh, uh, just a little. Yeah, <laughs> I a little bit. It's quite a bit. A little bit. Uh, Shashank, you talked about um, some of uh, of what you thought about Spock earlier. Let's build off of that. What did you think about uh, what we saw throughout the entire episode with both iterations of that character? Okay, guys, this is where I was uh, talking about that Alice in Wonderland sequence, which is one of the most telling things about Spock in the scene. If you look at it, uh, you actually get to see Spock look at a different side of his mother. Uh, because I think that is why if you go back and watch the scene, I watched this a few times to confirm, he's smiling as the scene ends. And it's, it's cut right before you see a full smile. But, you know, Spock as a character would not like to sit and re- get Alice in Wonderland read by his mom. That's not what Vulcans do. So Amanda is getting to live a different kind of motherhood with Burnham. Uh, a different shade of her human motherhood, as opposed to raising a Vulcan child, a half-Vulcan child, I'm sorry. Uh, She gets to raise a fully human child now. Uh, And that's definitely definitely telling with their relationship. Uh, I I certainly do not know where they're going to go with the characters. From the trailers, we can tell that clearly things are not in a great place between the two of them. But, yeah, there there is almost a... I don't know if they're showing us a negative side of Spock, but they're definitely doing their best to show us that Spock is complicated as a character. And he's not the Spock, at least the one we'll meet in this season. That's the Spock we know and love from TOS season one onward. So wherever they go, and I do not, I, I have no reason to speculate and think that my speculation will be as good as what they're going to do in the actual show. But I'm very, very excited to see where they'll go, specifically because uh, Everything I've seen about Spock in this particular episode is a side of Spock I've not seen before. I have not seen Spock as a child shut the door on another child and completely ignore that person. I have not seen Spock break a smile while he sees his uh, mom and his adopted daughter reading a story. And I've... uh, and the fact that they're hiding Spock, kind of making him the mystery character and uh, building that up, I, I really like that a lot. It's it's interesting to see that we're going to have aspects of Spock that we're not used to. The only thing I can say is I hope he doesn't like when he does show up. I hope he doesn't have like a full beard because I have a feeling the internet will go nuts. Anyway, so let's talk about a couple of things that maybe we didn't or well, maybe some did and some didn't like. Um, let's talk about the sneeze, shall we? <laughs> the turbo lift scene with the Saurian Linus. Uh, uh, Bill, let's start with you because <laughs> I, I have a feeling you've got some comments about this. What you what 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 do you think? I thought it was absolutely stupid. Um, it, it was uh, it added nothing to the story. I, I get the sense that it, it it just doesn't fit with the rest of the script. It doesn't fit with the characters. You know, even Burnham. It just it doesn't fit. Um, so I have to believe it was added after the fact, um, maybe on set, maybe in the past that, that, uh, uh Aaron Harberts and Gretchen Berg did on the, on the script since they received a co-credit for it. Um, but it just, it just, it, it was, it was ridiculous. It was dumb. Plus, you know, you look at uh, the inner workings of the turbo lift on the discovery. It looked like a Willy Wonka assembly line as it's twisting and turning and yes. going all through the enterprise. That visual made no sense. And then right. the sneeze on top of it, it just, I thought it was a, a poorly added sequence. Um, and it just, it seemed really juvenile. 
I liked the fact that they brought a Saurian onto the show, and he's probably yep. going to be in a few episodes, I would think. It, I mean, and and the the technology, of course, has evolved from when we first saw one. I think we saw one in uh, the motion picture, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. So that's pretty old. It, it just, it, it, like like you said, it, it felt out of place. It didn't go with the flow of the episode. I thought it was... I thought it was juvenile. Uh, I think toilet humor is a phrase that you've used in the past when talking about things that may not work with with other shows. And that's what came to mind with this scene when it took place. Nobody is going to turn and sneeze into another person's face. I mean, that just isn't going to happen. And for that, I just thought it took away from what was almost a perfect episode. And that that to me kind of hurt it a little bit. Shashank, you along the same lines or did you enjoy it? I would have enjoyed it more had they not put it in every trailer. Uh, I definitely yeah. would have. Uh, oh, true. It, as as a joke, as a scene itself, it would have been more fun uh, had they had I not seen it a million times before. Also, it I think it's a wasted opportunity because, as you said, people don't turn and sneeze on someone. But when there is a sneeze and somebody's in front of you, you can't help but get that so, get some of that on the other person. So, had they been strategic about the elevator and cramped up the people such that somebody was in front of the alien that would have at least made it a little funnier not that that's me saving the the joke in any way my one problem uh with the with the sneeze is that it's uh, uh and i hate to say this because i love discovery so much but it's an indication of a bigger problem in discovery and that is this sense of forced comedy that they really want to bring in. The show is already positive. It's joyful. Uh, and I honestly think uh, one of the underrated aspects of Star Trek is its comedy. There's a lot of really good humor in some of the older shows and the Kelvin Timeline movies. But when they force a joke like this, pushing people to laugh uh, or trying to crack a smile, it just was not needed in that scene, especially because right before that scene, we see a really witty conversation about metaphors and similes between uh, Pike and everybody around the crew. And maybe this is something, uh, again, I, I don't want to bring this up because I really enjoy Discovery, but I wouldn't be a real fan if I didn't bring it up. But it's also not entirely unrelated to some of the forced comedy from Tilly. Uh, in this episode, the there is a way to do comedy. And that is, you know, you actually be subtle and be very reserved about making a joke because when you actually make a joke in an hour-long series, if there are three or four people really laugh. If there is a character who's trying to make a joke with every line she's saying, it goes from being funny to just being annoying. And Tilly is such a good character, such a positive, powerful character. But saying things like you have beautiful nail beds and... Uh, <laughs> I actually love that. <laughs> uh, no, it's a great joke. And had that yeah. been her first joke in the episode or the second joke in the episode, it would have been great. But every scene she's there, when she just runs into the ship and talks about Morse code, or when she's in the lab trying to make a joke about being drunk on power, when that is the 10th or the 11th joke she's making in the show that skirts very dangerously close to Wesley Crusher territory. And it's, it's just, the, I'm not saying that's what the character is. My The, uh, the character is great. That's not my worry at all. But because I've lived through Wesley Crusher and I've lived through These Are the Voyages, I know there are some things that uh, just they just don't go over well. And one of them is this, this sense of comedy. So guys, if you're listening, please, if, the best way to make this funny is by not giving us every joke with a character or trying to force situations like this into a humorous situation. 
I, I have just two quick follow-ups. I, I love that Shashank, you know, made it through Wesley Crusher the way most of us made it through the last recession. You know, it's 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 that weighty. Um, but going back to one of Shashank's earlier points about the blocking of that scene, it's really troublesome because here's Linus, who is a an officer that is below Starship Captain, standing in the middle of the turbo lift, not making way for two captains. <laughs> one, his own acting captain, Saru, and another you know, flag officer, a starship captain, you know, he just stands there when any other officer on the planet would have gotten out of the way for a superior officer. So uh, it just, that scene just is, is troublesome all around. It's, it's not blocked. Well, it's not scripted. Well, um, I, I get the feeling this is Alex Kurtzman, but I don't know for sure. So, and uh, if you look at that, the Linus itself, he's a funny character to look at. Just yeah. having that character show up in the scene in the trailers and not show the sneeze would have still worked better because the sneeze is supposed to be a surprise. But because everybody who is watching it has probably seen the first trailer, which is uh, mm-hmm. the trailer in which this joke was in, just so much forced comedy. They they really don't need to do that. The show is great on its own. Stop trying to ruin something that's already so good by pushing a joke just don't push a joke on people trust me as someone who pushes jokes on people it's not good it just gets annoying eventually (laughs) we're from starfleet we don't lie anyway uh okay so speaking of one-liners let's wrap up all of our our discussion points with tignataro showing up in star trek discovery as commander jet Reno. I know that there's a lot of differing opinion, differing opinions uh, <laughs> on. Is that a word, Bill? No, not remotely. <laughs> okay, good. I know there's some different opinions uh, on what people thought about Commander Reno. And uh, Shashank, let's start with you. Uh, what do you think? Do you think we were talking about humor and whether it's forced humor and and whether this works? What did you think about uh, the introduction of this new engineer? Uh, I I enjoyed her her humor. That was a welcome uh, change for me. When when you go from seeing characters who are very grateful to be in a place and uh, people who are generally positive and, and are enjoying what they're doing, when you go from that to seeing a character who's just absolutely hating the fact that she's an engineer having to deal with all of this, she's been cooped up in a in a room uh, for all this time trying to survive. That was a really nice way, way to portray someone in Star Trek is just, uh, I know I mentioned this before, but that evolution is a fickle bitch line gets me every time. That was a good, good job. I really enjoyed that one. And uh, her portrayal is great. I'm sure we'll see a different side of her uh, because I believe she's going to be in some of the future episodes. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know she's a supporting character. So she's going to be there at least for a good little bit. Uh, and I, I, I definitely enjoyed uh, her portrayal. I'll say a little bit more once you guys get your thoughts in. But overall, I enjoyed it. Bill? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've already taken a beating on social media for my view on this. Uh, I did not jo- enjoy Tignataro as as Commander Jet Reno. Um, partly because I, I think it's a horrible miscasting. I understand what Tignataro's brand of comedy is. I've seen her work. I like her work. I like I like her I just don't like her in this role um, because it totally took me out of the scene. Um, It it was clear to me that uh, while she is a comedian who also does some acting, she's clearly not somebody who is an actor. And by that, I mean somebody who has studied the profession. She certainly is not up to the level of everybody else who was in that scene. 
Um, I just, I almost feel like Alex Kurtzman got her on set and said, okay, hey, you've seen Star Trek 2009. This is just like when Kirk and Prime Spock meet Scotty on the snow planet. So it's just, it's the very same type of character, but just kind of put your own spin on it. It just, it, it didn't work for me at all. I thought it was way too wry and dry for somebody who's been abandoned there on a crash landed ship for 10 months. But, but again, I, I'm, I know I'm in the minority on this. It just did not work for me on any level. Okay, I'll let you guys jump in. But uh, Bill, I just want you to imagine the other side of this. Imagine them actually landing on the Hiawatha and seeing a character who's ready to go, who's disciplined and uh, strict and is is not, has been doing everything right. A very Miles O'Brien character type who's, who's done everything right and is just waiting there. Everything's in place. Would That would just not be very enjoyable. It would... It would just not be interesting if you've built up to so much of this. But as opposed to that, when you go to a place where you actually see a character who's not in her element and you get to see uh, someone who's not happy to be there and ready to get out, uh, that I thought was more interesting. And it might be because this is the first time I'm seeing Tig Notaro in anything. So maybe that's why I enjoyed it. Could just be me personally, but I, I do hear your side. Yeah, and I respect that. I mean, but to me, she wasn't Commander Reno. She was Tig Notaro in a Star Trek uniform. Um, there, there was no range here for me. Um, uh, there was no character. It was Tignataro. And I think that's, uh, that's why I, I didn't enjoy it at all and why I feel it took me out of it. Um, uh, you know, I get it. I mean, you would think that somebody who'd been stranded somewhere for 10 months trying to keep people alive would at least been relieved on some level visibly that there were new humans to come to rescue her and not Klingons while she thought they were at war. Um, but instead it was that same deadpan monotonous tone, which she's famous for. And I get it. Um, it, it works for a lot of people. It just didn't work for me. I'm on the fence with how I feel about, about it. I liked the, the dry humor that she had, but I'm looking at it like this and it kind of ties into what you said, Bill. She's been alone uh, for 10 months. Um, and I kind of think along the lines is maybe she's kind of like Tom Hanks and Castaway when he was on the Island by himself for years, talking to a volleyball. If this, if this can, if her character continues in this way, when she's on whatever ship she's on, whether it's Discovery or whether it's on another ship, and we see her, my opinion might change a little bit because she might just be suffering a little bit from, um, I don't know, uh, some kind of, you know, whatever the affliction is when you're alone and, and talking to yourself all the time. Like I, I'm doing right, right now, basically. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if that changes. If it doesn't change, Bill, I think I'm with you. It's it's not the right casting role, but I thought I, I did find myself chuckling quite a bit with her scenes. So uh, I guess we'll see what happens. Well, here we are. It's time to reflect on those that we've lost in this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery. It's the somber part of the show, but we feel it's the least we can do for those who have paid the ultimate price, even if they are a pompous ass. We like to call this the red shirt roll call. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. Dead, Jim. You know, Bill, just because it was a happier start to season two sure doesn't mean we didn't lose someone this week, does it, buddy? Well, sadly, Dan, we add yet another name to the red shirt roll call, and it's that of Science Officer Connolly, who wasn't wearing a red shirt, but might as well have been. I tell you, he suffered deceleration trauma and became stuff on an asteroid when he and his hubris collided in one grand fashion right before he did a one and a half gainer right off the windshield of Michael Burnham's pod. It was a sucky way to go. But then you know what? He was a sucky guy. 
So, so long, Connolly, and don't let the asteroid hit you on the way out. Oh, wait. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. I think I think this is the first time I've laughed at a red shirt roll call. Um, oh, if only he wasn't so smug and and just looked out his left side window. Uh, That's all oh well. he had to do. Yeah. Yeah. We raise a glass of synth hall in your honor, Mr. Connolly, and say goodbye in this week's red shirt roll call. This week's episode is brought to you by Fansets, the exclusive sponsor for Discovering Trek. And I tell you what, we are just thrilled to have them back for another season. You know, their Star Trek line of pins continues to grow, and each pin looks simply amazing. So you should head on over to their site and put a bunch of those in your shopping cart. And of course, during checkout, be sure to enter this week's exclusive checkout code REDBURST, that's R-E-D-B-U-R-S-T, all capital letters, no spaces. You do that, and you're going to get 10% off your entire order at fansets.com. Now, this code will be available to use until Sunday, January 27th, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I just love getting back into the swing of fan sets discounts, man. It's good stuff. And and hey, here's some more big news for season two for you pin collectors. Fansets is proud to be bringing back the episodic pins collection for season two. Just like with last season, there's going to be a special pin for every episode of season two with the episode number and title, as well as a special image from the episode. But Unlike last season, these pins will be available to purchase on an individual basis instead of as a whole set. And the prices for these pins are going to stay exactly the same as what they were last year. $20 for the first and last episode of the season because they are larger pins, and $15 for all episodes in between. Be sure to check them out as well as their entire line of pins at fansets.com. Fansets. We are Star Trek, and as always, we thank our friends at Fansets for being our exclusive sponsor for the entire second season of Discovering Trek. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. Star Trek has always been a reflection of our times, and in this segment, We're going to take a look at this episode and see if it helps us discover our humanity or perhaps what it tells us about ourselves. And Shashank, let's start with you as our special guest this week. Uh, What did you see uh, in regards to our humanity with this very special episode, Brother? The first thing that struck me as I was watching the episode is that these characters are doing their best to move on. And... I'm sure everybody in our life, uh, we have been through something that's really difficult. And it seems on some days that it's impossible to move on from something like that. But the episode really hit home the fact that this is an, a crew trying to move on. And you can see that when you are uh, when you watch a character like Stamets, who's still healing. He talks about Cassillian Opera when he's supposed to be talking about the asteroids and how they're helping. Uh, on the other hand, you see someone like Burnham, whose uh, character trait is to not reflect on those things while she's doing her job because she's really professional and she wants to focus on the task at hand. So there are so many stark differences in the crew that really uh, st- struck me while I was watching and the, the approach to all of them and how they move on as different people, how they deal with tragedy. Uh, how you deal with tragedy as a person uh, really tells a lot about who you are. And uh, it told me a lot about the characters, uh, humans and aliens on the show, uh, how how they are, what they are 
what they are about and how they deal with sadness that was really strong and stuck me a lot another thing was uh, the one thing that struck me about the episode is every sibling relationship there are very few sibling relationships that i have encountered in my life that are perfect every sibling relationship true to the name of the episode brother uh, shows that you know they are complicated they are complex there is happiness there is sadness there is love and there is just sheer anger to not talk to your sibling for years on end the fact that they hit on each of those notes and you see burnham struggling with how to even deal with the fact that she's seeing someone from her family and she is nervous about having to see this person and having to run into that person and actually have a conversation the fact that that is where the relationship is it really stands true to the name of the episode the theme of what they're trying to do so the the sibling relationship and what that is for us as humans uh, and how sensitive that is and also the part of moving on from tragedy those are things that that really struck me you know shashank you bring up some great points i think this episode is is aptly titled because it not only applies to the the foster sibling relationship between burnham and spock but also to the lore, larger organization of starfleet brothers and sisters as referenced specifically by burnham you know in watching this episode I'm, i'm reminded of a quote by author richard bach that says the bond that links you to your true family is not one of blood but of respect and joy in each other's life rarely do members of one family grow up under the same roof that's a quote i used to have in my cubicle at work for years and i, I still think that it's true here in, in this particular episode i think that also the concept of leave no one behind is one that applies to society today and not just starfleet and it's something that we as humans don't often do very well at all you know, star trek shows us a future where we've evolved past petty political bickering and and socioeconomic inequality and in that regard we truly have so far to go to level some of that playing field. I mean, there's so much we could do to help people if it weren't, you know, due to our own short-sightedness at times. I think that Star Trek tells us we can do better all around and I just I really wish that we were further along than we are, Dan. Oh, I totally agree. Um it was obvious to me that that Pike was frustrated on the bridge when he mentioned the fact that uh, the Enterprise was unavailable to assist during the war. That was a great tense moment between he and Burnham. Uh, And then later on, when he explained to Burnham exactly how horrible he and the crew felt for not being able to assist, it made me think of a line from The City on the Edge of Forever. Let me help. A hundred years or so from now, I believe, a famous novelist will write a classic using that theme. He'll recommend those three words even over I love you. Let me help. Pike is a man who obviously feels very strongly about wanting to help his fellow Federation citizens, and it makes me happy to see that these strong beliefs are still strong in Star Trek's future. We saw things we didn't like last season with how people acted in time of war, but it's refreshing to see this important trait in Star Trek. Let me help. How wonderful it would be if those words had more meaning in today's world than they sometimes do. Commendations, palm leaf of Axanar Peace Mission, Grand Kite Order of Tactics, Class of Excellence, Frenteris Ribbon of Commendation. All right, gents, Starfleet Commendation time, uh, award ceremony, so to speak. Uh, let's just talk very quickly about a couple of things that you really, really loved about this episode. I think we've hit on all of them, but let's just let's just break them down a little bit more. For me, number one, off the top, not even close, Anson Mount. 
He is going to be amazing this season. He brings the right amount of swagger to the role that we have not seen very much with Pike in the Prime universe. We did get to see Bruce Greenwood play a great Pike in the Kelvin movies, but this version of Pike is exactly what I was hoping for with Mount. I've never actually seen anything he's done. I know Shashanka talked about um, Hell on Wheels. I did not see anything that uh, in that show nor anything else that he's done. So I'm glad that I didn't have specific expectations for what he was going to bring to the role. Um, I thought it was. I thought he was fantastic. Uh, the other thing that we talked about uh, that I'll, I'll hit on very quickly is that introduction to the crew. Um, we talked, Bill. I think you mentioned it. I think that this was Ted Sullivan's doing. We love Ted. Um, I think he was responsible for this scene, this this scene, and and I thank him for bringing that to this episode. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to bring up that I really enjoyed were the special effects. Every single episode of Discovery since season one's first episode is cinematic in its scope and in its breadth. The external shots of the asteroid field in this episode were perhaps some of the best TV effects I have seen. They were flawless. And and I hope that that continues. It's obvious that they're putting the budget into the show that it needs to bring us great special effects. And I loved it. Shashank, what were your uh, your high points for your Starfleet commendations, my good man? Since you already covered uh, Anson Mount, that's the second time you've stolen something from me, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to move on from that and actually talk about uh, something that I don't think a whole lot of people notice because that's kind of the nature of the of the thing I'm about to talk about, it's the soundtrack. This uh, episode had a really good soundtrack. Yeah, I would love to listen to this at work while I'm typing up some code or when I am uh, ready to go work out because it's just such good, uplifting music. Uh, and everything from the subtle notes to that really high synth-based tune when they're going through the asteroid field, everything about the soundtrack is great. So uh, I, I'm really, really glad the composer from season one is back and... That person is uh, killing it with the soundtrack. And I know not everybody notices soundtracks, but as a soundtrack nerd, I couldn't help but notice that that soundtrack is good. You're always uh, you're always interested in listening to complex music that ties into the theme of what the show is trying to do and yet is not so noticeable that it takes away from what the episode is trying to do. Uh, so in that regard, I really enjoyed the soundtrack. That was one. And uh, VFX, uh, again, spot on on what you were saying. I really hate that we don't actually get to see this in the theater. Uh, the fact that this is an episode we only get to see uh, it at our home, in our home screens, is is kind of sad. Uh, everybody's talking about a Star Trek four, but people are not noticing the fact that they're killing it with the VFX, that theater-level VFX in uh, yep. the show that we are watching. And one, just one more thing uh, that I wanted to say, uh, the one-liners. I love the one-liners. Detmer, fly good. Uh, this feels bad. That was a good one. And I, I owe you a simile. That was a great one. And just every, every one-liner from Pike, uh, every one-liner from uh, Reno, the one-liners in this episode are great. I and uh, I'm drunk on power was kind of a, it was okay, but uh, just the one-liners for the most part, really good, great writing. Fly, fly good. I forgot about that one. That was awesome. <laughs> Bill, let's uh, let's wrap it up with what you think because I just love listening to your ideas of uh, of what your accommodations would be if they don't include me. So, what do you got? 
<laughs> well, my one of my combinations is going to mirror both of you, and I, I also have to give credit to Anson Mount. He gives such a great performance as Captain Christopher Pike, and you know he brings an energy to the show that is just infectious. It's fantastic casting, and he just delivers on every level. I want more of Pike, and I'm going to say right now, I even want a Pike show at this point as a result. Whoa. Let's see the time in between the cage and and the accident with the training crew. Um, I, I would love it. I would watch the hell out of that. Um, so uh, here's hoping, fingers crossed, they're announcing enough new Star Trek series. Why not that one? Uh, my second combination is for Ted Sullivan. We love Ted here on Discovering Trek. We truly do. And this is just one of the best season premieres in all of Star Trek. It's got adventure. It's got drama. It's got humor. And really, it's just a great hour of television. Um, and then lastly, I have to say at the USS Enterprise, damn, she looks amazing. Oh. It is so good to see the Big E on television where she belongs. Um, I can only hope that we get to see even more of her and get to see her in action because that'll just be the best. But uh, for now, Dan, those are my commendations. I I didn't even think of the Enterprise. And, and you're right. I mean, I remember how... I was freaking out at the end of season one when it flew up to the discovery. I know. And, and, and then we got to see it again. You're right. I hope we see more of it. Well, the only times we saw it, I think in episode one, all the power was out and they had like, you know, little, uh, little worker bees uh, around it. So yeah, very, very, very nice. Good. That's the best Starfleet combination of the day. I think, sir. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Long range scan of planet complete. So I think last year we were over. When it came to long range scans, Bill, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe one for something. Yeah, I think we were one for like a million. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't do, do too good. So let's start off on a new fresh slate. And uh, for my long range scan, it's it's a little bit morbid, but I hope that we see this. I'm not sure if we will. But when Captain Pike is leaving for the final time on, on Discovery and he's, he's off to do whatever, I hope he mentions something about... Uh, heading off because the enterprise is on its way to help some cadets who have gotten themselves into a little trouble with their ship because we know what happens with that. So um, it's kind of, it's like I said, it's kind of morbid, but that would be a great continuity wrapper. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Uh, The timing doesn't necessarily work. Um, It's, it's not until the late 2260s that Pike is injured aboard that J-class uh, starship with, uh, and exposed to the Delta particle radiation. At least that's what we learned from the menagerie. So I, I think there's still a number of years to go. It really, it's right kind of before, maybe like 18 months or so before he meets Kirk Spock and McCoy with Commodore uh, Mendez. So um, as, as cool as that would be, I don't know if the timing works on that one, buddy. So I'm 0 for 1. Thank you. Okay. Uh, what about you? What a way, what a way to start the season. Um, I... So I'm going to key in on the fortune cookie that we saw this week. So obviously mm-hmm. there's a reference to Pike there and the cage, because uh, not every cage is a prison, but the second half could mean there's a character who we may think is gone, but we're going to see again in large fashion. Now, some might say it's Hugh Culber and, and they may be right, but I'm going to double down on this one this week. And I'm going to say that I think that it could also refer to Gabriel Lorca, whom I think we're going to see again in season two of Star Trek Discovery. That's right. I think we're going to see prime Lorca this season on Star Trek Discovery. Write it down in pen. That's my prediction. Wow. I'm, I'm writing it down right now. That is an awesome prediction. I love that prediction. And that's one that I hope comes true. Um, Shashank, you got anything you want to uh, uh, foretell, oh, soothsayer of, uh, of Discovering Trek? Uh, sure. I, I think uh, 
while I, I did refer to it as a fantastic beast, mainly to make a joke out of it, I really think they would not have set up something like that so so casually. I, I, I think something will come of what they're trying to show off, what Spock is trying to do there. Maybe in the future we'll get to see child Spock and child Burnham. Uh, there is definitely going to be more of them. So maybe we'll see some of the uh, moments what they're doing when they're by themselves. And he'll talk about what that thing is that we got to see. Maybe go a little bit deeper into that mystery. And I think it will, in a way, connect to the overall season mystery of the signals. Uh, maybe I could just, I'm just speculating at this point, but I don't think they would have opened uh, such an important season on that scene, showed us that that beast that he's trying to draw up and not make anything of it. So I definitely think it will connect in some way to whatever the big bad of the end of the season is going to be. Two out of three awesome long range scans. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> nice job, guys. Well, um, we had a lot to talk about with with this first episode, brother. We've got some amazing uh, Star Trek stories in line for us, I think, this season. So, Bill, uh, what can we look forward to next week? Dan, next week we consider episode two of Discovery second season as we're heading to New Eden. Hey, brother. Wow. No? No? No. Yes, no. the title is New Eden, and we'll be joined by our friend and first time discovering Trek guest Crazy Joe from Megapodtastic. And let me assure you, he is no Herbert. Until then, remember <laughs> that you can subscribe to Discovering Trek by searching for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or even by heading on over to discoveringtrek.com. And wherever you listen, we would love it if you'd rate and review the podcast. That will help other Star Trek Discovery fans find the show. Dan. Thanks, buddy. Well, Shashank, we want to thank you for your first visit and not last visit, I can assure you, to Discovering Trek. Uh, we loved your thoughts and opinions on the episode. Before we head out, can you tell people where they might find you on the internet, my friend? Okay, uh, I'm more than happy to do that. Uh, it was definitely an honor. Uh, you guys are uh, instrumental in helping me and Barry have our podcast, Polytrex. There would not have been a Polytrex without Trek Geeks. So first off, thank you for that. And speaking of Polytrex, people thank can you. find our show, uh, Polytrex on at Polytrex on Twitter, or they can go to the Tricorder Transmissions Network website. Uh, we discuss politics and culture in the real world, and we try to compare them with events in Star Trek and characters from Star Trek. It's an interesting show. We have fun. A lot of jokes. Jump on it. Uh, you can also <laughs> find me personally talking about all kinds of nerdy things on at gutter underscore hero on Twitter. That's G-U-T-T-E-R underscore h-e-r-o on twitter i talk about all kinds of nerdy stuff jump in there too we will definitely do that with both thank you so much man well folks that is it for episode one of discovery's second season uh i think it's safe to say that it started out on the right foot and we are going to have one heck of a fun ride over the next several months as always, we want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to set aside some time to listen to bill and i discuss discovery we truly appreciate it, and we look forward to the next time we sit down to talk about Episode 2. Until then, here are some words of wisdom from Captain Catherine Janeway of the Federation Starship Voyager. You can use logic to justify almost anything. That's its power and its flaw. And until next week, never stop discovering. 
Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks. Executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com.